0: This Week Explained.
1: Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Carvin as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get to what's on the agenda this week, Kervin.
0: All right, Russia, Ukraine, and Israel, Hamas. Those would be the first two, as always. Um, We will get into the suicide drone strike that happened in Jordan on Tower 22, which is a uh, portion of a U.S. military base in Jordan. Um, That was the big news of the week, but also...
1: A suicide drone strike? Can an inanimate object commit suicide? (laughs)
0: I mean that's how they that's how the media describes it, but uh
1: okay. I, I, mean, I feel like that's a poor choice of words, but all right.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, uh, do you want to get into like the sci like in sci-fi? <laughs> we could be like, can AI commit suicide? Can a machine, you know, when I know they had like can't?
1: art. They had an art installation with AI with that. Robot arm that was constantly cleaning up that black fluid yeah. that was leaking from the bottom of it, and eventually it just got so tired that it shut down. It yeah. quit doing it.
0: So, I so mean, that's going to be something in a hundred years that our you know future be, generations are going to have yeah, to worry one, about.
1: This is obviously a conversation for a later generation.
0: <laughs> trying to make it out of this world, okay? Like this one's yeah. bad enough. <laughs> yeah, this one's Kick really that can down the road.
1: It's stressing me out a little so
0: bit. So we're we're not going to have that conversation.
1: Okay, like, I was just so, I was just wondering. <laughs> I just thought that was a weird choice of words. That's all. Okay, sorry.
0: Um, Continue. You know, we'll also get into uh, something. That's uh, a few things that have gone under the radar. Um, one is that Russia has made a dispute for some Japanese territory. And this dispute goes back to even uh, World War II and even before this is that.
1: Cracking me up! They're like Alaska's yeah. actually ours. Some of Japan is actually ours. Let's just go around and say we should start saying, "Okay, you're actually ours." Siberia so yeah, well, belongs to America. It's an extension of Alaska.
0: Well, we're uh, so we're going to make our Oakland Analytics flags and just start placing them all over the place. That way, we control little islands here and there, especially off the coast of Sweden.
1: Yes, I would love a little baby <laughs> island in the archipelago. Archipelago. How do they pronounce it? Archipelago? Archipelago. Okay. I was starting to say it the way we were taught to say it in Louisiana.
0: Oh, archipelago? Arch-
1: archipelago. That's literally the only way I heard a teacher pronounce it my entire schooling yeah. life. Okay. Anyway, sorry, keep distracting you.
0: Love I'll the teachers up. out there. Um,
1: no, he's serious. He does. We love do love teachers, teachers, but there are, you know, like any yeah. profession, some are not that great.
0: Yes, um, that's the
1: same in any profession.
0: That's true. All right, uh, shut We can up. we can have that conversation. Uh, but no. So we'll get into uh, Hungary. We talked about Hungary the last few weeks, and and how. They actually hold the key to get Sweden into NATO right now.
1: Because Putin told them to keep holding us. Yes.
0: Up. And we are going to get right into that. I know you've been tracking it, so I know you're excited to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the other story that I think went under the radar, just because it came out the same time as the drone attack on Tower 22 that, uh, that tragically killed two service members, um, the Hells Angels were I actually- what did i say Two. Oh yeah it was three i don't know what okay. i'm saying anymore me neither dude but um yeah the the hell's angels which is a motorcycle club right mm-hmm. they were contacted to be a murder for hire by iran <laughs> and so we're going to talk about that story because i do think it uh I think it's very important to discuss it, and you know the far reach that Iran has.
1: But also, if they do that, isn't that treasonous?
0: Well, that's that's interesting because this uh, faction of the Hell's Angels gang was from Canada. So,
1: oh, okay, so it's not American,
0: right? It well, it's it's Canadian Hell's Angels to kill a U.S. citizen in Maryland.
1: Oh, okay, we'll get we'll get there, and okay, we'll
0: get all into it. Yeah.
1: Nutty, okay. Well, sorry about the constant sidebars we had reading the reading what was on the agenda this week. But let's let's get into it. I wouldn't say right into it because we've been going all over the place. But what is the latest coming out of Ukraine?
0: So actually, the big news out of Ukraine has to do with Europe as a whole. Um, That's because Putin has ramped up that anti-NATO rhetoric uh, after this after saying he was ready for a peace deal. You know, we, we discussed the, oh, I'm, I'm going to do a police or a, a peace deal, which he doesn't really want a peace deal. He's just floating it, you know, as one of the options, seeing what sticks with the people before the elections. Um, so this week he told the people of Russia that the Russian military will be pushing the front line more Western in, York, in Ukraine. Um, and he said that's because he wants to protect the state of Russia from Ukrainian attacks within its border. So it seems to me like, He Putin's like readying to make that push to Kiev uh, or at least float the idea of a push to Kiev and see if it resonates with the Russian people.
1: Well, is it resonating with the Russian people?
0: I mean, I guess that depends on on who you ask. And, you know, everybody has different opinions, even in Russia. Um, But the the telegram channels from within Russia, at least the ones that that I track that are talking about the war from a pro-Russian side, they're very pro. They're still very pro-Russian special military operation, and they are still calling it a special military operation in this. They're not calling it a war. Um, They are praising Putin for not backing down against what they say is the entire world is against them.
1: (laughs) Well, they're not entirely wrong, but (laughs) anyway. Is there a possibility that Putin makes a push for Kiev before the elections? Do you think he's that emboldened?
0: You know, I, I have... Analyze that he is going to make that push. Mike Baker has, uh, has a different analysis that we talked about. He doesn't think Putin wants to go that far into it. Um, so there is differing opinions on this. And mm-hmm. it is it's going to depend on two things. First, uh, I guess most importantly, is how does this resonate with? Uh, I think the main focus is on those disillusioned family members whose loved ones are fighting in Ukraine. They want to bring their sons and daughters back. Um but the other thing is that, um, is Ukraine weakened enough at this time to be successful? Uh, so if they are, he would really make a push, but it, it is a gamble to make another push for Kiev because if it's unsuccessful, so all that goodwill that Putin has garnered because, uh, you know, there's a stalemate, so there's not much talk about who's, who's winning and who's losing in the battle. So he's garnered a lot of this goodwill, um, And if he doesn't, if he makes that push for Kiev and it's not successful, that's all going to be lost. It's all going to be for naught.
1: Then while we wait and see what Putin's next move will be, let's get into the Israel-Hamas war. What is the latest on the ground in Palestine?
0: So all the talk this week has been around a possible peace deal. Uh, Negotiators have flown to Paris. They've said that they've reached a broad framework for a hostage release and a potential ceasefire in this conflict. So we found this out through an Egyptian intelligence who proposed the deal to Hamas. So that's how they're communicating with Hamas. Um, and what they've proposed is a six week pause in fighting with three Palestinian prisoners released for every civilian hostage that Hamas returns from Gaza. Um, and, and this plan actually merges proposals from a ton of not a ton, but a few different countries. So Israel. Um, This is part of Hamas's proposals and then Qatar, Egypt and the United States have put stuff in there as well.
1: Well, do you think a deal gets worked out soon because I know people are gunning for it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and as of this recording and we are actually recording early Friday morning. So we're kind of up to date as soon as this gets released. Hamas is still reviewing the deal, uh, but they have remained steadfast in that desire to have the IDF completely removed from Gaza now. Israel, I would say, didn't help the discussions because they carried out an operation this week to kill Hamas members in a hospital in Gaza. And security camera footage was released of these Israeli operators dressed in civilian attire. They enter the hospital and then you see them searching for Hamas members.
1: Isn't that illegal or, you know, at the very, not at the very least, but is it against the Geneva Conventions? Because that seems... Like, how yep. do you determine someone's a member of Hamas? Do they have a card that they carry, yeah. and makes they make everybody show them?
0: So, uh, uh, if you want to know how we usually do this, um,
1: you mean America?
0: Yeah, America. Okay. When we're when we're carrying out an operation, and then I'll answer your question. Okay. On is it is it illegal? So usually, what what we'll have is what's called like a target deck, who have the targets on there, their face, so you see who they what they look like. A uh, bunch of descriptions of their features um, and and things like that. Now, this is if this was just a kill mission where they were going out and all they were going to do because uh, there's two things you, you can have a capture kill mission, which depending on what happens, if a terrorist fires back at you, you you kill them right because your life is in danger. If they surrender, you just get them, um, and that's typically what we were doing the last like four or five years of the Iraq Afghanistan wars kick a door down and you put everybody so in that if it's a capture kill mission in that situation when you've captured the person you can put do biometrics so fingerprints retinal scans things like that that prove that that's who you think it is um you can also do it you know by looking at the face and saying okay i've confirmed that's this person looks like that person um and just a kill mission you're going to go off of what you know about the person um, and if they have the intelligence of where they're usually located, um, what they're usually doing at a particular time, then you take all those factors in and you become at a probable on this is the person that is the Hamas leader or the Hamas entity that you want to kill. And you go ahead and and perform that mission. So to me, this was Looks like it was probably just a kill mission, just go in there and kill Hamas leaders. But it's a valid question because we have civilians in the hospital, right? And we're supposed to be protecting civilians, no matter what is going on. Um, and what you asked if it was illegal or not, or at least against the or the you know against Geneva conventions, is still very, very much debated. It's a valid question. Now, per international law, a uh, violation of the law of war occurs only when there is a treacherous use of civilian clothing that is the proximate cause of death or injury of others.
1: Well, that's kind of similar to what happened, right? Did they kill any civilians? Did that come out?
0: Uh, so in this
1: attack, or did they manage to only kill?
0: I believe they said so. It, and this all depends on on who you're going to trust reporting this. Uh I believe they said it was either three or five individuals were killed. Now, Hamas released it was, like, whether it was three or five, I can't remember right now. Hamas said it was just Gazans, so...
1: Not Hamas members.
0: Well, whenever they put information out, they do not delineate between Hamas members and civilians. They just say Gazans. Okay. Because they're all Gazans. Um. Now, Israel says they killed whatever the number was, three or five Hamas members. So that's why I say it always depends on who you trust in the reporting.
1: Well, I mean, I just definitely think dressing up as doctors or possibly injured civilians in order to enter a hospital to kill people would be considered treacherous.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, one guy was walking around with a wheelchair uh, I don't so like... he was walking with the wheelchair or he was yeah. in a wheelchair pushing himself I think at some point getting into the hospital he was in the wheelchair but it's a very odd scene because he has it folded up and he is carrying it and running around with it
1: beating people with it
0: no he wasn't beating people but I think you could have dropped the wheelchair and just continued the operation without it limped yeah, limped limped, something. limped around i don't know. it is it's a wild wild scene that happened I, and i don't know all the intricacies, intricacies to it so i'm not going to intricacies intricacies i'm not going <laughs> to report on that i'm not going right. to tell you my opinion on what i think is is right or wrong about this i uh, kind of just did <laughs> well no not i mean you were just asking it it seems uh, like it could be
1: it does seem um
0: and it's and you would be right if they did it like that, like I said at the, that last part, if it caused the death of civilians in the hospital, and so as as far as we know, no civilians were injured. Depending on who you you trust in the reporting, and so Israel can say that intelligence led to the operation, and that in the planning it was decided this was the best way to carry out the attack, um, and it's the best way because they need, and they need to do it in civilian attire, and that's how it's going to lead to the least amount of uh, of civilian deaths. Now. What I'm saying is, once again, that's not me saying this. This is just me saying that this is what Israel could say is their reasoning. So they haven't said what it was. I'm just kind of speculating there. Um, so once more, any of the any new information that comes out, and once we know more, we will come back on the podcast, let let you know what happened there once we get more information. Um, and then, you know, the, the U.N., when more information comes out, the UN can call for a vote on war crimes if they deem that necessary.
1: Well, speaking of the UN, has there been any update to last week's news that members within the UNWRA helped or facilitated the Hamas attack on October seventh?
0: Um, yeah, the so Israel continues to provide what they call significant evidence that shows dozens of members of the agency were not only actively supporting the October 7th attack, but they also participated in in some form or fashion. So that's still ongoing. I've not seen that evidence, so I can't speak to what it is, what it looks like, whether it's factual or not. Uh, But multiple Western European countries, uh, like the U.S. and Canada, are continuing to remove funding from the organization.
1: Western European countries like the U.S. and Canada?
0: I meant, sorry. Not like the U.S. and Canada and the U.S. and Canada. Uh, um,
1: okay, there we go.
0: Yeah, I, I f- forgot I said European as I was saying it. So.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, what exactly are they accused of doing, like specifically, in order to facilitate this attack? Did we ever discuss that?
0: Yeah, so uh, Israel says that there has been some funding from those members. Okay. Um, Didn't they
1: use V? actual vehicles from the organization.
0: Yep. Um, Those people provided information and worst yet, Israel has accused members of UNRWA of harboring hostages and fugitives.
1: Okay. Well, what is the UN saying about all of this?
0: Okay. So they say they're not denying it. They are taking the allegations very seriously. They're going to do a full investigation all of those people that have been identified have resigned, um, but if the are been fired. But if the agency doesn't get its funding, the U.N. says that it could be devastating for the people of Gaza. Uh, the conversations are still ongoing, but, you know, I don't see the funding returning until the investigation is complete.
1: Well, while that is getting sorted out, let's get to the news of the week. Um Earlier this week, a suicide drone attack, I still hate that wording, but on a base in Jordan left three service members dead and dozens more with injuries. So what can you tell us about that attack? And has any group taken responsibility? And what options does the Biden administration have for retaliation?
0: Okay, the, the triple threat, the three question I'm gonna to try to yeah, get. Yeah, let's told. see.
1: Let's see if you can remember.
0: <laughs> I won't. You're gonna to have to remind me. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I do want to start with the attack. That's where we we do need to start. Um. It's attributed to Iran-backed militants or those Iranian proxies, and the drone possibly came from Syria. Now, Iran denied any involvement. Um. And. This is the first time that U.S. troops were killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since the beginning of the Gaza war um, and probably further back than that. Now, the this particular attack does heighten tensions in the region as a whole. Um, and we had now have calls from some U.S. lawmakers for stronger action against Iran and their Iranian-backed proxies.
1: Well, can you explain why U.S. troops are in Jordan? I mean, we're not at war in the Middle East anymore. At least in theory, at least that's what we're told. We're not yeah. there anymore.
0: Yeah. And then I mean that that's all, you know, what the definition of war is and how close to conflict is war. Those are questions and answers that we're not going to deal with because they just go into the intricacies of of wording. And so it's it's a valid question because as you said, we are not at war in the traditional sense in the Middle East anymore. But in 2015, the United States established a presence in that region through this strategic advise and assist mission. That mission was initially focused on training rebels against the Syrian regime, that Syrian regime led by President Bashar al-Assad in the civil war that's still going on in Syria. But as time moved on, the mission evolved to supporting Kurdish forces who were combating the Islamic State, so ISIS. Now, the Tower 22 is the site that was attacked. It is about 20 kilometers uh, from Al-Tanf in Syria. That's a, a, that's a Syrian uh, or a coalition base that is out in Syria. And this, act, this particular area functions as a hub for American engineering, aviation, logistics, and security personnel. They're actively collaborating with local forces in those countries, and that is because of the ongoing fight against the Islamic State.
1: So the U.S. is fighting the Islamic State. Is the threat big enough to keep troops in harm's way as we try to avoid getting involved in yet another conflict in the region?
0: Yeah, yeah no, I definitely think so. I understand the, the trepidation there. Um, and and everything you said is very valid. We do not want to get involved in another war. No one does. Um, I'm sure if you polled every single person they don't want to be actively involved in a war but the threat posed by the islamic state right now is substantial enough to justify a continued presence of u.s troops in harm's way and i want to reiterate that when they go u.s troops are out there they understand they are in harm's way but a a destabilized middle east not only impacts global security um it it also carries out economic uh, repercussions or it also carries economic repercussions now That's to include the strategic positioning of U.S. forces in the region serving as a deterrent against potential conflicts. So with U.S. forces there, yeah, there's an increased chance of war, but also it could be a deterrent for war. They also, those forces safeguard the interests of both the United States and its allies, notably Israel, Um, and Israel is facing multiple adversaries in close proximity.
1: But now that U.S. troops are under a constant barrage of attacks in this location in the Middle East, should we still be in these places or making plans to exit?
0: Now, here's how I feel about it and, and considering historical missteps. Right. I really believe it is crucial to maintain a strategic presence uh, in Syria. Now, I say histori- we're
1: not wanted there.
0: Well, we are wanted by the neighboring countries. Uh, We might not be wanted in Syria, but they're going through a civil war right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Jordan, this uh, advise and assist is based off of Jordan requesting U.S. troops in that location. Okay. As well as Iraq. We have troops in Iraq. That is because the Iraqi government has requested U.S. troops. Um, So so that is going to be continuous until those countries say... We don't want you anymore and kick you out. And that could happen. Those are conversations happening in Iraq right now. My uh, historical misstep that I believe happened was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, and what happened there demonstrated the consequences of a, of a premature disengagement that has allowed the Taliban to regain control. Uh, they've aligned with geopolitical adversaries like China. So what I'm saying is increased U.S. involvement is, in my opinion, not only advisable, but essential. Uh, That's particularly because we need to counter the immediate threat of ISIS. We also need to be close by to address Iranian proxies across the Middle East who are attacking Israel. And the way I see it is there's a problem with modern day isolationism. Um, So if all these entities are left to their own devices, these terror groups are going to further destabilize the Middle East. Then they're going to expand that fight to Europe and eventually to our U.S. listeners, they will get into the United States. So I think that proactive engagement is the key to preventing these reactionary responses that could compromise regional and international stability.
1: OK, but you said Iran has denied being involved in the attack. So has anyone taken responsibility?
0: I don't know that anybody has outright taken responsibility. Um And that just shows how much of a misstep it was to perform that attack. Uh, Right now, what we know from intelligence is that Khatab Hezbollah is the group that carried out the attack. Do that from, you know, looking at the drone and kind of all the intelligence we have. That's who it points to. So who is Khatab Hezbollah? They are an Iranian backed proxy. Uh, They are the one that has been ramping up its attacks on US forces within Syria and Jordan. And that's all hap- that all started once the war in Gaza kicked off in October. Uh, they have now released a statement saying that, hey guys, we're going to suspend military and security operations against U.S. forces. We are sorry. Um, and they say that they're doing that in order to prevent embarrassment of the Iraqi government, who they're trying to persuade to kick U.S. forces out of Iraq. Um, they also said that, Even though they're going to suspend operations against U.S. forces, they will continue to defend the people of Gaza in other ways.
1: Is that statement because they are worried about possible retaliation from the United States? Um, And what is the response from the Biden administration? Because I'm not seeing much in the news about a U.S. response other than Biden has made his decision on what actions the U.S. will take. Very vague.
0: Yes. Um, and and there's a reason why they remain vague, but also be vocal that, you know, it's going we, to happen. OK, um, I think, like I said, uh, Qatib Hezbollah understands that they screwed up royally. Um, even Iran is distancing themselves because they know this could get them involved in a force on force war with the United States. And that's one that they're not going to win. As for retaliation um, and taking direct action. The, the U.S. has to weigh two options. So first, Biden could decide to take a direct strike on Iran, you know, striking inside Iran, especially targeting Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps um, that could force from Iran, and that could send a very strong message to Iran as a whole. But it carries the risk of inflaming more of those militias and proxies and escalating tensions across the Middle East. So... This is the action that could probably start a regional conflict and then get both the U.S. and Iran into a war that they both have said they do not want to be in. The other thing the U.S. could do is they could also choose to hit just those proxy groups again. Um, that's the most likely what's going to happen, and I'm seeing reports that uh, it, it is going to be proxies in, um, in Yemen. Not in Yemen. Of course, that's happening as well. But in Syria, in uh, proxies in Iraq, but they will not hit Iran. So those are the initial reports that are coming out, and we'll see what happens there. But this approach, if they just do the proxies, um, what they want to do is deter further attacks. And I think that's already starting to happen. Um, just just the mention of it, just the mention that the U.S. is going to go on a full-scale attack seems to be working. Um, we're seeing that because those groups are backing down a bit, and they're saying, we're not going to attack U.S. troops anymore.
1: Is there an option that doesn't use deadly force because attacks on Iran or even sustained attacks on its proxies could get the U.S. back into a long, drawn out war in the Middle East?
0: Yeah, you know, there there is an alternative. I don't know if that's the best choice because it's what we talk about just doesn't work. Right. That would be to impose economic sanctions, um, cut off funds to Iran and its proxies. Now this, Why
1: do the proxies have access to U.S. funding anyways?
0: So the funding goes to Iran, and then Iran...
1: They just, funnel it they, to their proxies? Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, so it would just be, you know, by association. If we cut off funding to Iran, the proxies have funding cut off. Okay. You can also find the individual bank accounts and freeze them. Stuff, stuff we should already be doing. Um, but that becomes very difficult when you're talking about you know, illegal bank accounts and stuff that you just can't find. Right. Um, Now, the non-military option that we're talking about is the one that's routinely used by the Biden administration. But as I said, we both know that those sanctions don't really work Um, because there's workarounds. Uh, Iran does have allies that could help improve its economy without the United States. And that's even with major sanctions coming from the U.S. and Western Europe.
1: Well, then what do you think the best course of action is?
0: So honestly, um, I think bullies only understand swift direct action. So sanctions aren't going to do much. Uh, The U.S. needs to, and they will, carry out strikes on at least the group that carried out the attack. So that's a start. But I don't think you change things unless you take the fight directly to Iran. I'm not talking about starting a war, but Iran has to know that this cannot happen. Both the U.S. and Iran have used mediators to let each other know they do not want war. That tells me they're very serious. They don't want this to be a conflict. Um, But Iran did say that they have no choice but to attack U.S. interests in the region if the U.S. strikes hit Iranian targets. I think you have to call Iran's bluff here. I do Mm -hmm. think that they're bluffing about that. As the United States, you cannot appear weak. After something this tragic happens, we talked about this being a red line. If a U.S. service member dies, that is terrible and direct action needs to to happen. Um, And why I say that is because it not only sends a terrible message to our allies if we don't react, uh, but it's also a very, very bad message to send to the families of those service members.
1: Yeah, and it's something you have talked about for months. Ever since Iranian proxies started ramping up attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Jordan and Syria, um, you said at some point a mistake will happen and it will cost lives. Yeah. That is a tragedy, what happened, and our hearts go out to the families and the friends and the colleagues of the service members who lost their lives. So let's go over to the Indo-Pacific and talk about this interesting development between Russia and Japan, because Russia's just trying to take everybody's land now. Yeah. (laughs) It looks like um, Russia is disputing territory in the region. What can you tell us about
0: this? Typical Russia, right?
1: Typical (laughs) Russia.
0: Oh, my gosh. So this particular dispute is over several islands, which Japan calls its northern territories. It has been occupied by Russia since World War II. And this dispute has prevented the signing of a peace treaty 76 years after World War II. So they still have not signed a peace treaty between Russia and Japan. The deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, that's former President Dmitry Medvedev, stated that the islands are not disputed territories, but they are part of Russia. Um, Well, if Japan disputes it, they're disputed. So just countering what Medvedev is saying there. So the dispute actually doesn't just date back to World War II. It dates back to the 1800s when uh, Russia was expanding southward. So prior to World War II, Japan and the Soviet Union had ratified uh, what they called the neutrality pact between the Soviet Union and Japan. And they were promising each other mutual non-aggression. So that happened. And then when Japan's defeat seemed very likely in World War II, the Soviet Union declared its intentions of not expanding that neutrality pact between the two countries, um, and so they just took it over. In the 1950s, so this is after World War II, the international community tried to get to two countries to come to an agreement on who owns the islands, the U.S., back to Japan, because we were in a Cold War with Russia at the time, so that was an easy one to choose Mm. but neither country agreed to the terms now since then not much has changed none of them have been fighting with each other and both countries right now to this day say that the islands are theirs
1: so do you think that japan and the russian federation will start a conflict based on this dispute
0: Uh, Not not likely right now, Uh, but that all could change once China invades Taiwan, um, because Russia could then use that as an opportunity to claim those islands as Japan rushes to the defense of Taiwan.
1: Well, let's get into the discussion of a Russian ally within NATO again. You know, again, Hungary has been in the news quite a bit these past few weeks. They are loving the publicity.
0: (laughs) I don't know about that.
1: I know, I'm just kidding. So what is the latest there?
0: So obviously
1: obviously Putin is still there saying, don't give in.
0: Yep. Um, Do not. And and so as we've discussed previously, Hungary is the only remaining holdout to approve Sweden as a NATO country. Um, But that's all because Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is an ally to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now... Uh, Orban has started to say he doesn't want to send aid to Ukraine to help defend that country from Russia. Um, European leaders met in Brussels this week. They want to they wanted to resolve a standoff over uh, financial aid for Ukraine. Uh, so just happening as I saw it this morning, that aid did happen. Um, Hungary did vote in favor of it, so that's one push in the right direction. But this continued. Pro Russian response seems to be uh, a move that Orban's making to force a rethink of European Union policy towards Ukraine. Now, Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk criticized Orban. Um, he said that Orban is strange and very egotistic um, or egoistic. And he argued that Ukraine would lose the war with Russia if Hungary influenced European Union policy. Um, so, what Orban is opposing is he wants to hinder additional funding for Ukraine because we're coming up on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion. And he wants, you know, he's a pro-Putin guy. He wants to see Putin elected as president in uh, a high fashion. And so because of all of this, European Union leaders are growing very impatient with Hungary. Uh, and there are ru- there are rumors of potential punitive action against Hungary, their economy, all, all of that.
1: So they're thinking there's going to be repercussions for them holding off on this vote.
0: Yeah. And so, like I said, that uh, they just approved the vote, I think, for 50, I want to say it was 50 billion dollars to Ukraine. Hungary
1: approved that, too?
0: Yep. Hungary did approve it. But they so Orban is now looking for future um, votes that are coming up to approve more funding. And he is going to, if not stop it. Right, he's going to try to hold that off as long as possible.
1: Well, do you think this gets solved soon, or has Orbán dug in his heels and he's, I don't know, ready for a long fight with the European Union?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I have no clue. Um, he continues to say one thing, but then do another. You know, uh, he said hungry. Like most politicians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, show me a politician that hasn't done that, and I'll yeah, show you some right. lakefront property in Arizona. <laughs> oh, I guess they do have that. I meant ocean front. <laughs> that actually sounds nice. A lakefront property in Arizona.
1: I I mean I'm sure it's fine.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm a mount, I'm a mountain person. You we definitely are that kind of family. Um now, Orban has said that Hungary would not be the last country to ratify Sweden's ascension into NATO. Yet here we are. They are the last country. Um so the I think that the EU is going to have to continue to pressure Hungary. They're going to have to to take that punitive action. Um, but then that risks losing any support from Hungary. Uh, and then you move Hungary away from the EU and into a complete alliance with the Russian Federation.
1: Well, we will see how this plays out over the next few weeks. Let's get to the final event from this week and one that may have gone under a lot of people's radars. I know it kind of went under mine cuz yeah it, I had no idea
0: about this and, and recent... sorry no do you want me to I just finish, I just wanted to say or what <laughs> well I just wanted to say it's not because no one's paying attention or anything it just happened the same time as the attack in Jordan against the US service members so it just kind of went away
1: well so anyways like I was saying before I was rudely interrupted by you sorry i'm just i'm just kidding. <laughs> i'm kidding um there was a recent report from the FBI and it said that Iran attempted to hire Hell's Angels bikers to kill Americans within the United States. What the heck is going on there?
0: Yeah, I'll try to get this uh, complete story out and if you're you're still listening, you're probably one of very few people that um will hear about this report uh and and you're exactly right. It just flew under the radar. Um, like I said, it's because the DOJ released the report at the same time as the attack on U.S. forces in, in Jordan. But here's what we know. Uh, Naji Sharifi Zandashti, allegedly acting on behalf of Iranian intelligence services, is accused of attempting to hire Canadian Hells Angels member uh, Damian Ryan and an associate to assassinate two individuals in the state of Maryland. That's the, uni- that's the U.S. state of Maryland. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Zindasti, uh, who does live in Iran, is accused of being a drug dealer targeting Iranian dissidents for kidnapping and assassination. And this is all at the Iranian regime's direction. So right now, all the individuals face charges of conspiracy to use interstate commerce facilities for murder for hire. Sounds like a, some high charges to face. Mm hmm. Oh, the, the plot. And we, we got all this because it was revealed in newly unsealed court documents, involved uh, discussions on an encrypted chat app. That's like WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, those kind of things. And they were talking about equipment, the details of the job, and the actual payment. Um, now, the, the documents don't identify the victims that they were potentially going after. That's to protect those victims. But uh, Zendashzi allegedly agreed to a $350,000 price for the Hells Angels to carry out that job. Um, and they facilitated this payment through an associate. So U.S. officials claim that this network is connected to Iran's efforts to silence perceived opponents in exchange for protecting his, that criminal empire that Zendashti has. And so that means that these the victims in Maryland or wherever are probably Iranian nationals who are here in the U.S., and Iran's trying to, to silence. We
1: do them. have everybody from all over the world up here, for sure.
0: Yeah, especially in our little hub, which includes Maryland, D.C., Northern yeah, Virginia.
1: You know, the DMV.
0: The, yeah, because DMV. it's slow and non-efficient. No one, and no one wants to be here. <laughs> uh, so, so the reason I wanted to talk about this and, and kind of stir up a discussion more about it is that it's just very intriguing to me to see the extent of Iran's influence in the current geopolitical climate, so despite their repeated claims of not wanting to engage in war with the United States, they seem to be struggling to control their proxies or other members that they fund. As this is an issue that we that everybody should be monitoring close closely. So, first of all, I want to say kudos to the Department of Justice to the FBI for identifying this, taking that prompt action before it was carried out. Um, and and these are the kind of intelligence victories that go unnoticed, uh, because we like to a lot of times, for good reason, talk about the failures of the intelligence community as opposed to their recent accomplishments.
1: You learn more from mistakes.
0: You you very much do, and those mistakes, yeah, you should be called out for it. Uh, right. So you learn from it.
1: Well, thank you, Kirvin. Is that all for this week?
0: That's all I've got for this week. Do you have anything else you want? I know we're in a rush today, but do you have anything else you want to add?
1: We're not in a Total rush. Um, I just want to say that I we're going on an adventure this weekend with our kids to our old stomping ground. So we're kind of excited about that.
0: So if you're in Raleigh, reach out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you don't have to do that. Yeah. You don't have to do that. But um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else going on. I don't even know if our listeners really care about what's going on in our lives. I just like talking about myself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That well, actually kind of made me gross saying that sentence out loud. I apologize. <laughs> well, I guess that's it. Yeah, that we do we have? have
0: insightful inquiries, inquiries coming
1: yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have insightful inquiries coming out. Well, you say, talk about it.
0: Yeah. Your so uh, that's going to come out on Sunday. I. So for me, this is a very important episode. It, it was done with Sam Peterson. He is the co founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization that is helping. Veterans deal with depression, PTSD, traumatic brain injuries. He's using um, medicines in new forms in order to, um, he says, achieve uh, at least an 80% solution to depression and suicidal tendencies inside, uh, you know, within the veteran community. So uh, I'm very proud to put this episode out.
1: So lobotomies.
0: Yeah, no, not, not I'm, lobotomies. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just don't want to give Anymore? everything up, so everybody listens. Yeah. Um, but we'll have all of his contact information on there. So if it's just so important, if if someone is struggling or you see someone struggling, reach out. Um, and and Sam has a pretty good solution. If you're in at least the western portion of the United States, and they are branching past and trying to get into the East Coast to become.
1: So where is he based out of?
0: He's based in Colorado, uh, but that. So they they are affiliated with the VA, but the VA West only right now. Right, of course. It, it so the, the VA has four zones. Um, one of those zones is the West. That's Washington State, um, Washington State, Oregon, California. Some parts of Texas. So it goes as east as some parts of Texas. Um, so that, that is a lot of people that they can take in. I think we're called Mid Atlantic.
1: Mid Atlantic VA. Okay, I was just wondering.
0: Yep. Right. Um, well, yeah, and so I, it's a very I love I love talking to him. And um,
1: the episode will be out on Sunday. Yes, but anyways, thank you so much for listening to this humble little geopolitical podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics.
0: Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week.